Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. People used to laugh when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. (laughs) Humour takes many forms. It can be transgressive, courageous, dangerous, an invitation to social solidarity, cruel or simply boring. Analyzing humour is a dangerous game. Look at it too closely and you can kill the thing you love. But that's what we're risking in this week's podcast. And with me to discuss humour are Lina Morakotis Lindemann, co-founder of the Human Religion Network, courageous woman, Will Owen of Cambridge Footlights and Mohammed Shamali, former student here at the Wolf Institute, now undertaking a PhD in Middle Eastern studies, former stand-up comedian and sheikh in the Shia Muslim community. Well, welcome all. But before we get on to the conversation of humour, here's a clip from our friends at The Naked Scientists. It's laughter yoga teacher Zoe Harris getting physical. What the laughter is supposed to do, it has two um, effects on the body. So physically, you're inhaling a lot more oxygen, you're using more of your lung capacity, so it's oxygenating the blood, it's helping you feel more energised. Physically also, the process of laughing from the deep belly and the diaphragm, so you're exercising um, muscles internally, but especially your heart muscle as well, and it is said that your uh, one minute of laughter is worth 10 minutes on the rowing machine for your heart. So that's good news. Lena, is there something physical about laughter? Do we change when we laugh? Oh, I think there's definitely absolutely something physical. First of all, it's very hard to suppress it. It has to come out. I mean, your 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 facial expressions, it's hard to contain it. And also your chest, you... It causes something to kind of expand and in a way, I I suspect I'm not a doctor, but also to breathe um, more um, sort of deeply to to gasp and laugh. And let's be honest, we'd all rather laugh for a minute than row for 10, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So is laughter good news, Mohammed? I think laughter is the only good news, Um, you know, especially nowadays with so much bad news coming from many different sources. I think laughter could be one of the few sources of comfort we have in these uh, turbulent times. Have, have there been times when laughter isn't good news, though? Uh, when it's nervous? <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. That's, uh, I mean, you're a, you're, you're a stand-up comedian in your own right. Have yeah. there been times when you've been standing up there and, you know, the, the heartbeats change because you realize that actually in front of this audience you are dying yeah well i've been laughed at a lot um but from childhood i learned to even appreciate that like as a comedian you'd like to um help people laugh with you or at your jokes but from childhood because you know um, in my family there was a lot of pain a lot of difficulties so and my jokes weren't that good when i was a kid so the only way to help them have a better time or for example to relieve their pain a little bit was them to was to have them laugh at me so i would do silly things i would walk into a wall even and they would laugh at me but that would help them you know get through their pain everything so i've learned to even appreciate that so that's why even when i was doing comedy i didn't mind it when even people were laughing at me 
Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, laughter can only be good news. However, um, we do find ourselves sometimes in uh, situations where you are bursting or you have a, a, a great urge to laugh in situations where it's not viewed as appropriate. For example, laughing at um, some comic aspect of a funeral or in a situation mm. that uh, in, at a joke that might be perceived as offensive and you're the only one laughing. Um, so that's when it starts getting uh, a bit tricky and um, and slippery, and I think it illustrates the um, the, the pitfalls of, of humour and, and laughter. Will, there must have been times at the Cambridge Footlights where laughter was actually quite dangerous when you were slipping into areas that really were controversial. Yeah, I think definitely. Uh, well, I think especially with something like the Cambridge Footlights is that we are all, you know, 18 to 25-year-old students often performing to 50 and above on average audiences and so perhaps there's kind of some cultural political references that to us now we're maybe more desensitized to than what an audience um at the time would perhaps kind of find it more more offensive than, than we do and i think people do like to toe the line and also i think that's another thing about especially if you're a comedian you've got to slightly toe the line to figure out where is is appropriate and and i think with any kind of discipline and craft because comedy is a craft as much as anything else you've got to kind of learn your skill set and be able to take risks but also obviously always within the realm and that's not you know there's i think it's also obvious to any kind of sane person when it's been pushed too far what's the difference the cross-generational difference then do you say you're you know a younger uh troop of comedians and on the whole you're you're, you're speaking to a, an older audience. What, what's that, what, what challenge does that bring? Well, I think a lot of the difference stems from how big a role social media plays in comedy now and, and sites like Twitter that is used as a massive kind of site for, for jokes and, and things like memes that people... And that's kind of how people share comedy often nowadays. And I think that that immediately, because it's coming through a screen and a filter, allows people to be more desensitised in a way that when you're in front of a live audience, you can kind of test a reaction and perhaps it, it doesn't get the reaction that you might expect when when someone shares it um, online. And and I think so in that sense, it also means that young people are constantly reacting to the news, trying to be funny, trying to get likes or making a joke out of it. And so it almost, it creates a sense that everything is almost fair game. Well, not not everything, but I mean, it it allows a conversation to become funny much quicker on sites like Twitter. And that's perhaps where the difference sometimes lies. There are disadvantages, of course, the social media we've all experienced. But from a comedian's point of view, you lose the material. Well, of course, because, I mean, firstly, you share live videos of performances, which means you can't gig a set because people have seen it online. And equally, there's a growing trend for you go and see comedians and they're essentially reading out their Twitter page to the audience live. And that's another way of trying out material, not just through gigs, but they've already tried it out online. And if it's got a thousand, two thousand likes, they'll put it in their set and do it in front of a live audience. Mohammed, your humour crosses religions, doesn't it? I mean, um, you're a Muslim comedian, but often your audience is a non-Muslim audience. What's the challenge there when you're engaging with an audience that is from a different faith tradition? There are many challenges, uh, but also there are so many good points because um, when you're talking to people who are from a different culture, you have so much from your own culture that you can make jokes from. Like you just have so many backgrounds, uh, uh, jokes which are so new to them. So that's great. And another thing about humor is that no matter how different people are, once they're in a you know comedy room, they all just want to laugh. So it immediately joins people together. 
And uh, the famous quote goes that the, if you want to talk to people about the hardest thing, you know, make them laugh. So I think the the advantages really overcome the challenges. For me, the challenge was if at some point I felt like maybe uh, through my comedy, I also have to bridge the gaps. And so that responsibility um, kind of uh, put so much pressure on me to make sure I'm not just making people laugh, but I also do something to bring people together because... You don't want to also be boring. And I just wanted to pick up a point that both of you made on on um, comedy. Uh, I think there's very much a communal element in a comedy room, um, sort of this 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 chemistry in a way between the audience and the comedian. Uh, and in a way, also the when it when it starts getting into a bit slippery territory where you don't know if things might offend or not, I think the benefits of having sort of this live comedy is that the audience acts as a feedback mechanism. So you know whether your joke has bombed, has backfired if you start hearing boos or whether everybody's laughing. Mm -hmm. So in a way, there's also this interactive relationship between the comedian and the audience. Um, and and that's very unique to stand-up comedy and live comedy shows, for example, in um, other forms of humor like cartoons or vlogs or things that circulate. There's no, this, you don't have this kind of interactive element. So is a joke only funny when there are people present? If you say a joke and there's nobody there, does that stop it being funny? Yeah, I think that's such a good point because... If jokes were only funny when people were uh, when people were around, then introverts would have a very hard time. Because as an introvert, most of my jokes uh, jokes I can think only after the meeting is over, or even now I'm sure after I'm going back home after the podcast. Oh, I should have said that. I, so I really find myself funny when I'm alone. So I'm hoping that <laughs> jokes are not um, only for when other people are around. Yeah. A pod on humor has to lead to some examples of jokes. So let's try it. Yes, Will, give us a joke. <laughs> okay, this is one that I heard yesterday, and I'm not promising that it's going to be funny, but so it's Doctor Doctor, will I be able to play the violin after my operation? Yes, I don't see why not, um, says Doctor. Good, said the patient, because I couldn't play it before. And that's the joke. Uh, okay, I think we have to move <laughs> <Yeah>. quickly on. <laughs> Humour clearly takes on many different forms. Uh, Lena, you're undertaking research um, in humour between faiths. Um, it's got the lovely title, One Joke at the Time. Yes. Um, what's that trying to achieve? Um, it's, uh, the, the premise of the, of the project is that we know a lot about um, how humour can backfire mm. um, in many situations and very much notably um, when the Muhammad cartoons and the Charlie Hebdo, Hebdo um, conflicts. Uh, but we don't, I, I think that we don't know that much about how humor can act as a bonding element, something that I think you alluded, Mohammed, uh, earlier um, of bringing audiences together. Um, and so the, the project aims to achieve that, to, to know more about how it can bring audiences together. Uh, I'm not 
saying that it can create, uh, it can solve everybody's um, everybody's problems and uh, uh, make the world be a peaceful world everywhere, from racism to prejudice to sort of the concept of the other. And I think that's that's what the project is really trying to explore: uh, how and in under what circumstances interfaith. Uh, humor, especially when you have comedians from different faiths performing mm-hmm. together and making jokes about religion, how that can contribute um, to interfaith dialogue from a, a new and, mm-hmm. and a novel way uh, and hopefully reach um, people that traditional interfaith dialogue wouldn't reach. So sort of to, to go beyond, reach new audiences and, and do that in a, in a new way. I think that's really interesting at this sort of cultural moment in comedy as well, because actually, almost more than ever, comedy itself is becoming slightly polarizing. Because, like you said, there's so much, it's got such a brilliant way of creating solidarity and bringing people together and undercutting stereotypes. But that's also now led to a, a kind of lease of life for certain comedians who are kind of pushing back against, you know, what they might term to as a kind of like snowflake generation or, or too much liberalizing or, or being too woke and they're kind of pushing back against the PC police say that's interesting because there are people that do argue that there's room for that kind of comedy when actually I think it always has to come back to where is a joke punching yes and and I think it's about what kind of joke is is sacred and it's about whose joke it is to make and I think that there's not necessarily like taboo jokes to make but it depends on the person that's making it no, exactly. Some people disagree. I have a colleague who might um, potentially disagree with that. But I think it's very important of who makes fun or who jokes about whom and about what. I think it's much more socially acceptable for someone who's Muslim or Jewish, for example, to make fun of being Jewish or being Muslim from your own group. In other words, make fun of your own group rather than start making fun of of somebody from outside the group. And that's when I think it starts getting a bit slippery. And when you have comedians that, for example, a Muslim and a Jewish comedian, like we've, we had at the Wolf Institute a few months ago, I think there you have a little bit maybe more freedom and it's considered possibly a bit more well-natured if you have let's say, Jewish comedian counterpart making uh, some kind of a joke about being Muslim and the reverse. But I think it's very important of who makes fun of what. And I think it's more more socially accepted for to make fun of Christianity or make fun of, of, of Christians because in a way it's a dominant culture and a little bit more slippery when you start making fun of, of Islam or, or Muslims or Jews or other faiths who are, that are more in a minority position. So it's about power and powerlessness. Yes, exactly. Mm. And, and the whole idea of punching up or punching down or, you know, laughing at or laughing with. Mm. Well... We're going to bring this first half of a podcast to a close, but I can't do that without a punchline of some kind. So I'm now looking at Lena. What are you going to offer? Uh, well, there's a joke that I, I had heard um, I, a Muslim comedian when I first met him a few months ago. And I, I don't remember the exact wording, but he said, well, you know, us Muslims, we make um, great, we are great taxi drivers. We're very good taxi drivers, but we're even better airplane uh, pilots. We know how to fly planes really well and to and I think he was obviously alluding to the 9-11 but to me that's a very good example of using the stereotype and the fear of you know Muslim equals terrorist 
and turning it on its head and making a joke out of it. Well, I'm going to turn this part of the podcast on its head. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Lina Molokotos Liederman, Will Owen, and Mohamed Shamali. We can't talk about this subject without mentioning the contentious topic of canned laughter. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to tell you a corny joke, God forbid, would it seem funny with added canned laughter? Sophie Scott of University College London has researched this area. The original introduction of Laughter Tracks, which was for comedy on the radio, that was done because people at home didn't necessarily realise they were listening to something that was supposed to be funny. Uh, so they started using a, a live audience frequently. <laughs> and of course, laughter normally happens you know, in a group with other people, so it's a strong cue to people that this is comedy. What these data suggest is that this is not only telling you it's OK to laugh, it's also giving you a sense that the whole thing is just funnier. <laughs> I've always found canned laughter a problem. It, it, it makes the humour, if I'm watching it on, on television or at the, the cinema, um, it undermines it. I, I, I can't engage with it. As comedians yourself, is this something that you like or do you despise canned laughter? Uh, yeah, I don't like it. I think it's trying to do that thing that we were talking about before of creating the communal feeling of some, someone else laughing with you, but... I always also think it, it almost treats the, the audience that's watching it from the screen as idiots, as if we don't know where the jokes are coming and so undermines the performers and the writers by having often also too big of a reaction for too small of a joke, particularly in American sitcoms. Every single joke gets almost exactly the same reaction from an audience, which is not reflective of whenever you actually go and see live comedy or of someone who would be watching it from home. And I also and I think often so many, so many shows are much more successful when they just trust their audience to get their jokes and, and I think so part of the problem with canned laughter is that it doesn't trust an audience and in comedy you've got you've got to rely on your audience you've got to let them have the space to find what you're saying funny and it doesn't it doesn't give that room I, um, yeah I, I really get your point well but you know um, um, I'm the person in the cinema who is like everyone's looking at because he's laughing harder than everyone at every scene um, so I personally kind of enjoy it because it, you know, I feel like I'm not alone laughing this loud at, at, at a joke. And also, I think, yes, for many people who are comedians, great at comedy, they may get jokes, etc. But for so many people, I think a little bit of help actually uh, makes them appreciate the joke better and quicker. So I would be in the category of people who actually enjoy canned laughter. Do you feel more confident knowing that you've got canned laughter in the can? Well, <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. And I think also some studies, um, when I was doing comedy, I, st I started reading a lot about it. And I think a lot of studies showed that actually canned laughter sometimes does increase the laughter of audience. Because as soon as one person laughs, you're like, oh, this is a funny moment. You laugh. And then later on, you realize, well, actually, it was funny. So it does that for a lot of people. They laugh. And without the, can, without the canned laughter, they wouldn't have realized this is a funny moment. But when they laugh, then they realize it eventually. So, yeah, I think I, I'm pro-canned laughter if, if we're voting today. <laughs> in the Middle East, in, in, in Iran, yeah. where you originate from, Mohammed, is there, is there canned laughter? Is the humor different? How does it, how does it vary from, from the West? Uh, canned laughter is not a huge thing. No, it's... Um, but humor is very similar. Humor is um, like... Because I grew up mainly in my own country, right? So when I came here, I didn't have much problem trying to adjust my sense of humor. Because from some cultures, you have to. But uh, no, I think Iranians, um, 
have a very similar sense of humor. And now because of all the difficulty they're going through, I think they're becoming even funnier. Like that's, as uh, Lena was saying, it's a coping mechanism. So now you feel like everyone's a comedian back home, which is both good news and bad news. The bad news is like, I'm not special anymore. But, uh, but now every friend, every cousin who sends you messages is just like hilarious. And you know, there has been so much bad news that in order to cope with it, I think it has turned the whole country into comedians. There is a coping mechanism aspect to humor. There's yeah. no doubt that if one's in a difficult situation or a predicament, yeah. you know, a bit of uh, self-deprecation or a bit of humor at that situation yeah. makes it easier to cope with. I mean, that's, that brings me on to one of my favorite jokes, which I'm going to share with you, because it's not really fair me asking you to, to give a, a exactly. joke. Exactly. Let's have some justice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have some justice. There is no justice, uh, because this is an appalling joke. That's why I'm, I'm a presenter rather than a comedian. Um, but if you do have real worries and you have a size 10 shoe all you got to do is put on a size 8 and you'll feel a lot better <laughs> oh that's kind of you laughing thank you um that was some kind of laughter there. <laughs> <laughs> are there things we shouldn't make jokes about i think it again comes back to who's making the jokes i think jimmy jimmy carr the comedian has quite a famous quote where he says the only thing that he'll never make a joke about is the hillsborough disaster and other than that, he thinks everything else he could spin a joke out of. I don't think I agree that he could spin a joke out of everything else. But I, I don't know if, if we should or could put a limit on what there's jokes on. I just think it comes back again to who's saying it. So there are probably a lot of things that some there's not a person alive that would be able to spin a funny joke out of it. But I don't think that necessarily makes everything free of laughter. Because again, it comes back to coping. And I think as soon as you take away that element of being able to cope through humor it becomes it becomes dangerous and you get almost trapped in that yeah I, th I think it's very difficult to make um sort of normative judgments and say well you can make uh jokes about this but you can't make jokes about that because i think the nature of humor and the nature of a joke is so it's so contextual it depends on on the background of the joke teller, as you mentioned. Uh, it depends on the context. It depends on the socio-political context. It depends on the audience and sort of the dynamic of the audience. You can make a joke about a very sort of innocuous thing and it could really backfire. Or you could make a joke about religion or race or some, a very sensitive topic and it could be very funny. And I, I certainly, for example, have, have heard a, um, in one of a, a humor studies conference I attended last year, I listened to an Israeli comedian who was making fun, who was making jokes about the Holocaust. And it was very funny and w very well done. But he was Israeli. Um, so uh, and, you know, Jewish. Um, so I think that made, a, you know, obviously made a difference. But I think it's, it's so contextual and so subjective that I, I can't see how you can say, well, no, you can't make fun of, of X, Y, and Z. I think what's also happening is that comedy has, has evolved from a few decades ago being sort of, in a way, some silly slapstick laughing or joking. And now I think it's becoming uh, more verging on satire and really making fun and making jokes about things that matter, about politics, about inequality, about prejudice. And also you, oh, there's another trend, which I think is also interesting, that sometimes those who were sort of the butt 
of the joke or the targeted people who are more vulnerable are also becoming um, comics themselves. And a perfect example of this is disabled comics. I know uh, Sharon Lockyer has been doing some work on that where you probably a few decades ago you could make you could get away with making fun of somebody who's disabled now you can't do that but now you also have disabled people who are actually comics themselves uh, so the target becomes the the joke teller and the and the comic one point that I thought was interesting it's more sort of comes from a humor studies perspective um, and it refers to um, a British actually um, humor studies um, scholar who referred to humor and laughter as a thermometer and a thermostat which I think was a very good parallel the idea being that uh, a thermometer is when laughter or a joke or humor really is an indicator, a gauge of the public mood. It could be the public mood of an audience. It could be the public mood of a group or of a whole society um, versus the idea of humor as a thermostat, which assumes that humor has a much more active role, um, that it can let's say it might have a social corrective potential that it can do things, which of course is much more difficult to, um, to, to prove. Or, and, and that's where I think the research comes in. To what does humor actually do that might be more long-term rather than just like, okay, well, it'll just let off steam for some people who are, um, you know, it just provides some temporary um, entertainment. But I liked the uh, opposition and the metaphor of the humorous th thermometer uh, versus thermostat, or it could be both. Well, I'm going to draw this podcast to a close in a moment. But of course, there's somebody here who hasn't yet delivered his joke. Oh, the time has come. Oh, my God. Um, so I'm going to finish with a small joke. Then um, It says, before you talk against someone and judge them, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, if they get upset, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> well, thank you to my guests, Lena Molokotos, Liederman, Will Owen and Mohammed Shamali. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientists.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Or you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. Do join us next time. <laughs> <laughs>